Let's talk about Nehemiah chapter 2 this morning. If you have your Bibles, your paper Bibles, you can turn to Nehemiah 2. If you have your device and you have the YouVersion app, you can follow my notes in the YouVersion app there under events and then Emmaus Road Church. So we are a culture that is fixated with convenience. But just think about it, right? We, we've developed our culture around convenience. We drive up for our oil changes and we never leave our cars. I, I like that, right? We, we drive through the drive-thru to get our food handed to us out of a window. We, we order our items online. We have them delivered right to our house. Uh, I, I, I took Jen this week. She was still recovering from being sick, and so she didn't want to go grocery shopping alone. So I, I ventured into the fracas of Costco and Walmart. Much to my dismay, much to my delight is definitely not the right word. But the, Walmart was a flurry of personal shoppers. This is a new thing now. And the personal shoppers will go around and fill the carts with your order, which you've already paid for online, and they'll bring it outside and load the groceries into your car uh, so you can pick up your order and you never have to leave your car. And I, I, I wish I'd known that before we went into Walmart, Right. Because I got sick wifey, and I'm pushing the buggy, and I'm like, come on, baby, come on, baby. Right? We stream our entertainment to our TVs because driving to Redbox to get a Blu-ray, so 2017. We love convenience. We love convenience, and we hate inconvenience. Is it an app? I know, yeah, I know, it's convenient. I try to make it convenient for you, yeah. Convenient means, here's the, here's the dictionary, <clears throat> suited to one's end or purpose. Uh, synonyms would be, it's appropriate, befitting, or expedient. Now, I love the word convenient. Now, how many of you guys remember Saturday Night Live in the late 80s, early 90s, back when it was still comedy? Right? Um, there was a character on Saturday Night Live called Church Lady, played by Dana Carvey, who's a comedic genius comedic genius and church lady would always have somebody on her little uh show and she would set them up for failure and she'd be talking to them about what their life is like what they're doing and then she and then she'd start digging into sin in their lives and uh be totally inappropriate and the way she just bust them publicly right there on her little uh cable television show and and she would always make this accusation whenever somebody say yeah well i do that thing and she's like well isn't that convenient right she she, was always the matter of convenience and she's always making the charge that saying that people's lack of obedience to god or their their disobedience was essentially a matter of convenience to them I just, I just like burned into my soul. And, and whenever, sometimes I do things and I can hear a church lady saying, well, isn't that convenient, right? It's just, it's a matter of convenience to us. So then inconvenience is the inverse, which would be not suited to one's purposes, something that's awkward. And we, we've already established that we embrace the awkward. It's inaccessible, it's difficult, it's troublesome, potentially embarrassing. Yelling at you from the corner of a school gymnasium because we didn't bring the sound system is potentially embarrassing. So it's slightly inconvenient today, right? I, I want to tell you this morning that after 20 years of ministry, unequivocally, I would just say that ministry is inconvenient. 
Ministry is largely inconvenient. Now, the upfront stuff, man, the, the preaching, teaching, or, or especially if you're a musician and you get groupies, teaching pastors don't get groupies. But, um, but, the, but that stuff's kind of cool and fun. Um, but the regular day-to-day of ministry is just largely inconvenient. This week, some of the things I did were sorting receipts. Ah, this kills my soul. Right? Categorizing receipts. Filing things. Thank you, Marisha, for being a person who loves to file things. I don't understand that reality, but thank you. Um, and and then, there's the, then there's just this unexpected stuff, right? Ministry that's inconvenient can be unexpected, like the 3 a.m. phone call from the college student who's in trouble and needs your help. Wiping baby bottoms at ER Kids is inconvenient because nobody has that spiritual gift. Anybody? Spiritual gift of wiping baby bottoms? I didn't think so, right? It's inconvenient. That homeless guy you've been building relationship with that you see outside of Starbucks every every couple of days, he really needs a place to crash for a few nights until the temperatures come back up above freezing again. You feel that sense of inconvenience, right? There's the grief care for parents of the teen driver who was killed unexpectedly in a DUI accident. Talking to the facility guy this morning I'd never met before, and a parent in hospice. That's inconvenient. I mean, I'm just coming in here, I'm just like, can we get our chairs, can we set up our stuff, and, and, and this person's broken because their mom's dying, right? That's, that's inconvenient. And then there's this whole separate category of inconvenient ministry called church planting. Um, trailers loaded, rain or snow, hauling gear, setting up, tearing down, the limitations of not having your own space in terms of the ministry you envision, on and on and on and on and on. I, I don't know, maybe you're starting to get the idea ministry is inconvenient. I hope that you're I hope that that phrase will just be emblazoned in your brain for the rest of the week. Ministry is inconvenient. But despite being terribly inconvenient, all of these things are good things. They're good and right and God-honoring things. So if we're going to be effective for the kingdom of God, we're going to put our hands to the plow and not look back longingly at our comforts, we have to embrace the inconvenience of ministry. We have to embrace it. And Nehemiah in the text this morning has to wrestle with this himself. We're in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 16. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. And then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me and the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone? And when will you return? 
So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forests, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates, for the fortress of the temple, and the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon him, was upon me. Verse 9 says, I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. And now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sambalot the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem. I was there for three days. And then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. And I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me, but with the one that I rode on. And I went out by night to the valley gate and to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. And I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool. There was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. And then I went up by night to the valley and inspected the wall. I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Let's go back and look at verse 1. In the month of Nisan, 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was set before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. Remember, Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king. I did a little more digging this week about cupbearers in that period of history. Would have also served as the guardian and keeper of the royal apartment, the king's personal living quarters. So would have been in charge of that whole space. And uh, ancient depictions of men in this role in a royal setting portray them as beardless. Which means... In antiquity, they were most likely eunuchs in Persia as they were elsewhere in the world. And, and I ran into this interesting quandary this week because as I was researching this, God's law in Deuteronomy 23 says this, um, no one whose uh, testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. So you go, okay, well that's, that's Nehemiah if he's a eunuch. Um, what does that mean for him trying to be part of the family of God, to be part of what God is doing in Jerusalem at this time? And as I looked a little further and dug into this, I came to Isaiah 56, 1 through 5, which would seem to be in contradiction. So this is what Isaiah 56 says. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness For soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps my Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And then check this out. Let not the eunuch say, behold, I am only a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. 
So Isaiah is saying God's heart towards the eunuch is inclusion if their hearts are for him and obedient to him and desire to do his will. So we seem to have two contradictory passages, but the solution is really quite simple. Uh, The Deuteronomy passage is contextually dealing with Israelites who have deliberately undergone that procedure, having adopted the pagan practices of the surrounding nations. In fact, when you read Deuteronomy 23, the very next verse talks about the forbidden marriage to people who are not Israelites. Just going outside of the nation of Israel uh, in any capacity sexually and and assuming the engagement of pagan sexual rituals. So, So I think this interpretation stands that Isaiah would be taken as the fullness of God's heart. Uh, In in the case of eunuchs, the concern was not that they were excluded from the temple by being eunuchs. In fact, the text of Isaiah presupposes that they have access to the temple. The focus is on them being unable to have descendants, unable to have family. And so they're like, well, I'm a dry tree. Who's going to remember me once I'm dead? My family's just going to stop. Right, And the Lord promises within his temple and his walls a memorial and a name that's better than offspring, better than sons and daughters. So that's just a little aside issue. If, you, if you're reading the text and you happen upon that controversy, I want you to know uh, how, to, how to navigate that. But Nehemiah appears sad before the king. And in weeks past, we've established why that's dangerous. And, and would have been unusual, and he puts himself at risk by doing so. In fact, the king notices, you've never appeared sad before me before. That's, that's different. So look at verse 2 and 3. So the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. And I was very much afraid, and I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city and the place of my father's graves lies in ruins, and his gates have been destroyed by fire? So it's the king that calls attention to the sadness that opens the door to this conversation. And Nehemiah could have been punished or dismissed from his position or worse for upsetting the king. And we're told that the king was in good spirits. So that's not a time you want to bring up bad things with the king, right? There's not really a good time to bring up bad things with the king. Uh, He's afraid because the king notices his sadness. But don't miss this. When the king notices his sadness. Nehemiah is not elated that his manipulative, overly dramatic mood was getting results. That wasn't his heart. It wasn't his motive. In fact, he's very much afraid. And, and this is a word maybe for some of you that think you need to overdrama your face and manipulate your mate to get what you want. Okay? You got to cut that out. That's not what Jesus calls us to. That's not what Jesus calls us to. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, I came to you in weakness and fear with much trembling. My message and preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but they were with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Now, let's not fall into the trap of trying to manipulate people with our emotions and and being overly dramatic, right? Nehemiah simply responds honestly to the king's request. He says uh, in his heart, he's like, don't forget where the power is. Right? Don't forget where the power lies. It's not in my face and my ability to manipulate people. It's, it's in God. The power rests in Jesus. And so the king says, verse 4, what are you requesting? What do you want? And says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. I call those arrow prayers. It's like, just, just shooting it up, man. Just really quick. 
in the spur of the moment. That should not be your steady diet of your prayer life. Should not be arrow prayers. But there are definitely times when you got to, you just got to like fire one off because suddenly you find yourself in a moment where you need the Holy Spirit to give you wisdom and strength and just to, to lead you, right? And so uh, I said to the king, verse 5, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. So he makes the request, asks for a leave of absence, verse 5, to go and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. But notice this. He doesn't mention that outright. And this is very important. Very important. Because Ezra chapter 4 tells us there was a big controversy about this issue prior they wanted to rebuild the walls. There was talk about rebuilding Jerusalem, and it stirred up a huge controversy. Um, and so Nehemiah is being very careful with his word selection here. He uses phrases like, the place of my father's graves. He only lightly touches and mentions the gates, but nothing about the walls, and does not mention the name Jerusalem. And even after he gets a favorable response, he's still only willing to say, send me to Judah. Nothing about Jerusalem here. And that's not to say that he's deceiving or trying to be deceptive, but he's very careful. This is decorum with a king, and it's a matter of prior controversy. So he's trying to navigate this very carefully. This is wisdom here. And so the king said to me, verse 6, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone? When will you come back? And please the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, Let letters be given to me, to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, and the good hand of my God was upon me. I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army, and horsemen. So we know from verse 6, he has the support of the king and the queen. We know from verse 7, 8, and 9, he makes further requests and the king grants them. Passports, letters from the king telling the provincial officials that they have permission to travel there. Now that's a big deal because those governors could stop people from traveling through their province. So they needed those letters. There's provision for the materials that he's going to need. And he even sends a military escort. Nehemiah didn't ask for that. And, and, and the king sends it anyway. And then my favorite verse in this whole section, look at verse 10. But when Sambalot the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. That's my favorite verse in the whole passage. The enemies of God's people are grieved that help has come to Jerusalem. Now the Hebrew here literally reads like this. It was bad for them a great badness. I love that. I love that. When God's people engage with 100% of their hearts in obedient faith, the enemy gets nervous. Man, listen. When we engage with 100% of our hearts seeking to be obedient to God, the enemy gets nervous. This week I got a, I got a note from Pastor Ken in Spokane. And some of you may not know about the church at Planned Parenthood, that all over the nation now, uh, people who have churches and, and Christians and people who have been standing outside of abortion clinics, uh, protesting, trying to counsel women to make a different decision, are, are drawing back from that plan of attack and, and saying, you know what we need? 
what we need as a church is just to be outside of a Planned Parenthood and just to pray and worship after hours. We don't want to, we don't want to interact with the people because that's not where our battle is. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of this present darkness, as Ephesians 6 says. And so what we need to do is gather after hours when there aren't any people around and just worship the one true and living God and pray and intercede on behalf of this situation. And as they're doing that in Spokane, and now Yakima, and now Everett, and now Chicago, and Indianapolis just came online this week. I got a, I got a note from Pastor Ken in Spokane that said, um, Planned Parenthood in Spokane is presently in talks with a high-powered law firm to attempt to force the churches there to stop meeting to worship and pray on the sidewalk. Now that's interesting to me. That's interesting to me because at no point in all of the yelling, shouting, sign-carrying, protest controversy has Planned Parenthood tried to stop that legally. But now that they're operating in the spirit and fighting in the spirit, the enemy is getting nervous. That's what's happening. They were fighting in the flesh. They were fighting in the flesh. And now the church has begun to gather once a month to pray and worship and deal with the principalities and powers behind the issue, and they're scared and they're scared. So let me just say, God's people need to be wise about how we engage, but we need not walk in fear. We need not walk in fear. So I'll say it again. When God's people engage with 100% of our hearts in obedient faith, the enemy gets nervous. He gets nervous. He doesn't go away. He doesn't leave God's people alone, as we'll see. But you know you're fighting in the spirit God's way when the opposition gets stirred up. That's how you know. That's how you know. Verse 11. I went to Jerusalem. I was there for three days. I rose up in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring to the dung gate. inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down. Its gates had been destroyed by fire. I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing and not yet told the Jews or the priests, the nobles, the officials and the rest who were to do the work. So Nehemiah is counting the cost. There's a secret inspection to ascertain true condition of things and evaluate what is actually needed to see God's will come to pass. And not even the Jews know yet. Not even the people know. But before, I love this, before he did any of that, you know what he did? It says he took three days and he rested from the journey. He rested. Can I just say to you, uh, we, we need to be a people who rest to the glory of God as much as we work to the glory of God. We need a Sabbath in faith. We need to rest in faith. And Sabbath is a practice that requires faith because what we're doing is we're choosing to rest when the rest of the world is frantically going nonstop to acquire all the things that it thinks it needs. And we're saying we're not going to do that. We're not going to get in the rat race. We're just going to rest. And God's going to supply what we need even as we rest in faith. Each of us who claim the name of Jesus over our lives should know and desire God's will to be done. We need to know what God's will is. In fact, Romans 12 says that we can. We can know and approve, test God's good and pleasing and perfect will. 
We need to know and desire for God's will to be done. The church in all its parts must be willing to be part of whatever God puts before us and lays on our hearts. And sometimes that's a glorious task. And sometimes it's a scary and daunting one. But never forget that the prayers of God's holy and righteous ones are powerful and effective. They have divine power to tear down strongholds. And and let us embrace the reality that honest prayer, here's the reality, you you just got to listen to this. You got to get this in your heart this morning. Honest prayer demands that the person who's praying is also willing to be part of the means by which God wants to accomplish his will. You can't just say, Lord, I'm going to pray into this with all my heart, but don't call me to do it. It does not work like that. The person praying honestly before the one true and living God has to be willing to let God say, and by the way, I want to use you here. You can't say, no, 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 Lord, I'm really more comfortable here in the privacy of my home. I'm really more comfortable here in the places where I I know people already and I like this thing. I don't want to be moved and challenged. No, no, Lord. That's honest prayer. Honest prayer. And Nehemiah is an honest man. And he's a prudent man. He's careful with his words before the king. Even when he gets a favorable response. He's wise enough to keep his plans discreetly hidden until he can personally inspect the condition of Jerusalem's walls for himself. He's a man of vision. And he's no less overwhelmed in this moment as he's seeing the walls of Jerusalem for himself than when he first heard the news from his brother. But there's a growing sense of conviction and it's being undergirded by God's provision. His conviction is deepening. His his compulsion to do something is getting stronger and it's all undergirded by God's provision. And like Nehemiah, if we're going to be effective for the kingdom of God with our hands to the plow, not looking back at our comforts longingly, we have to embrace the reality of the inconvenience of ministry. We've got to embrace it. Ministry is inconvenient. Some of you may not know that Emmaus Road has five core values, all rooted in the passage in Luke chapter 24. You know, the, the day of the resurrection, two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus. And as they were walking, the stranger comes up and starts talking to them. And they, they walk together. And, and they're, they're, he's like, why are you guys sad? What's going on with you? And they're like, "Do you not? are you the only person in Jerusalem who doesn't even know what's happened in these days? And they begin to tell him about Jesus. And they don't know that it's Jesus because he's incognito, right? Jesus in disguise. And they're telling Jesus, about Jesus, and I kind of wonder, like, how did the debrief go later? Like, guys, you got me like a 65, 70, like D plus. I don't know. It wasn't great. Um, in fact, he says to them at one point, you got some holes in your understanding. Let me take you back to Moses and the prophets and explain to you why these things had to happen to the Messiah. He begins to teach them uh, probably the coolest Bible study. Like, if you could just go back and, and be part of that, be a fly on the wall and hear that Bible study, Jesus explaining the whole Old Testament to his disciples awesome. So they get to the place where they're going. They go to the hotel room. They're going to share a hotel room. They're there for the night. And, and Jesus is like, hey, why, why don't you stay with us, man? Just no need to walk on in the dark. Stay with us. We'll feed you. And they sit down. It says he, he got up to bless the bread. And as he broke it, it says he was revealed to them. And, and as they saw Jesus for who he was, it says he disappeared. He was gone. And their hearts were so stirred up by the revelation of Jesus, they got up and ran seven miles in the dark back to Jerusalem. 
They just, they just got up and went. They had to go tell the other disciples what had happened. And so we get our, our name from that passage in Luke 24, Emmaus Road Church. And then we get these five core values. Listen to this. The centrality of the gospel. Everything about the disciples in their lives centered around the gospel of Jesus Christ. I love you guys. We have some affinity together. And right now, like, there's a giant yellow ball in the sky, and that becomes the centerpiece of our lives for the next several months. And that's a source of affinity. We all like the sun, and we all like the lake, and right? But the, the centerpiece of who we are is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We, we talk about the value, too, is unashamed evangelism. Because even though this stranger, they didn't know who this person was, they were not embarrassed to talk to him about Jesus. They weren't. We live in a culture where we have been uh, convinced that it's not okay to talk openly about Jesus. And, and there's something wrong with us if we try to start a conversation about spiritual truth with people. We're not going to be ashamed of the, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So centrality of the gospel, unashamed evangelism. Jesus begins to teach them the word of God, which is the thing that transforms a human heart. If you, if you come out of here today thinking that it's my eloquence, well... You, Trust me, you won't. You won't. There's no, there's no danger of that happening here. But if there's any life change happening in you, it's the power of God's word. It's the teaching of the word. The, the fourth one is the intensity of community, right? I mean, when you journey together, you walk seven miles somewhere together, you're going to split a hotel room. That, that's community. Living life together is an essential part of being a disciple of Jesus. And then the last one is the inconvenience of ministry. Whoa, wait. Were we just talking about the inconvenience of ministry? I think we were. That's a value. That's a core value. It's my favorite one. It's the one that my kids like to remind me about the most. When I'm sitting in my home office around the corner and the door's open and I get the email, I'm like, oh man, I don't want to deal with this today. And my 12-year-old daughter who hears me in the next room says, dad, ministry's inconvenient. I'm like, thank you, baby. I want to go to your room. Right? It's the reality. I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way. Jesus was on a very deliberate, laser-focused mission to redeem humanity by his sacrificial death on a cross. I don't know. It just seems like the kind of thing that would demand all of your focus and time and energy. To, To live a perfect life knowing that you're headed for execution so as to redeem humanity kind of thing that would drive you to, I don't know, eliminate distractions and frivolities and inconvenient requests from other people. And yet, here's Jesus in the gospel accounts, constantly allowing himself to be interrupted. Heal my daughter. Raise my son back to life. Cast this demon out. Jesus, restore my sight. Heal me. Touch me. And nobody made appointments with Jesus. And he didn't have the scheduling app on his website. And he didn't have an admin assistant to deal with all the scheduling. They just showed up. They just showed up. And isn't it a testimony to his love and grace and patience that he embraced the inconvenience of all of it to minister out of love for his creation? To be interrupted, to be inconvenienced as he's going to his death And all the while, he's patiently entertaining these requests and even demands at times. And being inconvenienced, he never breaks stride in in accomplishing the mission. 
His days were so full of people intruding that often he would spend the night not in deep sleep, but in prayer, talking with his father because that's the only time he had to do it. And we also must count the cost of being his disciple. Paul would write to the Philippian church in chapter 2 that they are to have this mind among themselves and that we are to have this mind among ourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the very form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't go around wielding his godness prerogatives. Worship me. Bow at my feet. He could have. He had every right to. And he didn't. He came and washed feet. It says, but he emptied himself. He set that aside and took on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. They may be understating it slightly to say it like this, but it seems like death on a cross would be inconvenient. Can we say that? I mean, it's Jesus' goal, it's the mission. Right? And then the resurrection, securing our new life. Paul's writing in the Spirit, not just to the Philippians, but to us. And now he's saying it's our turn to embrace the cross. It's our turn to come and die to ourselves, to die to our agendas, and to live for Christ. Have this mind in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He set aside any personal agenda prerogative to accomplish the mission. And now we get to do that too. We get to walk in his footsteps. Ministry is seeing God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what ministry is. That's what God's called us to. His hand reaching to touch other people through you. That's ministry. And maybe some of you grew up in churches like I did where we recited the Lord's Prayer. Actually, it's the Apostles' Prayer, uh, since those were the people Jesus was actually teaching to pray. If you know it, right? Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thy will be done on earth like it is in heaven. Is that, is that really what we're asking God for? Because angels don't hesitate. Angels don't hesitate. There is immediate and full obedience when God speaks. And though there's no record of any angel ever voicing a grievance and having to carry out God's will, there seems to be plenty of that going on in the church. Understand that to pray God's will be done here on earth as it is in heaven is to invite inconvenience into your life. You're inviting inconvenience, which is what you should be doing, right? And I'm not saying that so you can avoid it at all costs. I'm just making you aware. I'm saying it so that you'll understand what you're called to, that you can fully embrace it in faith. You are no longer the master of your domain. You are no longer the the master of your life, your choices. You are subject to the king of kings. And this is precisely what Paul means in Ephesians 5 when he admonishes us to be being continually filled with the Holy Spirit. That's a prayer and an action that puts us under submission, under control of God's Spirit. 
We are no longer in control. We are no longer the ones calling the shots. It's a desire and a prayer for God's spirit to take control of our lives. And so it's a call to act in faith. And now you can see why we had to go slow and establish week one, embracing brokenness. And then week two in Nehemiah with the necessity of intercession so that we could even talk about the inconvenience of ministry. And so Nehemiah prayed. He prayed and God answered his prayers abundantly. But he was ready for God to answer him. Don't miss this. Nehemiah was ready for God to answer his prayers. My question for us this morning is, are you ready, are we ready for God to answer our prayers? Think about that for just a minute. What if God suddenly gave you the thing you've been praying for? What if he suddenly did the thing you've been asking for? Are you prepared to handle it and not let it handle you? Are we ready for God to answer our prayers? Are we preparing our hearts for it in faith and believing that he's going to do it? And knowing that it's coming, we're preparing for it, right? I, uh, how many of you have seen Facing the Giants? I, I love that movie, Facing the Giants, for the preacher and walking through the high school. It's a Christian high school. And he, as he walks down, he's touching all the lockers and he's praying over every locker. Every day he comes through and just pray over the lockers, pray for those students. And the football coach, who's a bit of a skeptic, feeling down and kind of a down season in his life, uh, stops him and they have this conversation. And, and, and in the process of the conversation, the, the, the preacher tells the coach, it's the farmer who prepares his fields for the rain is the one who's acting in faith. Not just praying for rain, but preparing his fields for the rain is the one who's acting in faith. Not the one sitting around waiting for the clouds to roll in. It's the one who's preparing his crops, his fields. And I'm asking the question of us this morning, are we preparing for the answers to our prayers? Are we really making our hearts ready for what God, what we're asking him to do? At Emmaus Road, we we're praying for growth uh, not just numerically, but, but in our hearts, so we would grow in Christ's likeness. But, but what would happen suddenly if uh, God consistently filled this room with people every Sunday? From, from this end to that end, and it was just all the chairs that they have in that closet were out, and there was standing room only. What would we do? What would we do if God answered that prayer? How would we handle that? Well, what if God granted us new Christians coming to faith every week? People getting radically saved and running into the arms of Jesus. Are you ready to disciple them? Are you ready? And if not, what are you doing to get ready? What are you doing to get ready? Are we ready to do what's necessary to meet the needs of an influx of new people rather than just entertain them? Are we acquiring the skills and tools necessary to reach and teach followers of Christ, to love God fervently, to touch people effectively, to live life responsibly? So our concentration must be on maturing people, not just multiplying seats. We've got to get mature. We've got to follow Jesus. What's the need? Our provisions. Do we need facilities? I don't know. This is a pretty good room. We're good for right now. God's good. We need prayer? Yeah, we need more of that. We need more prayer. It's like, there's never like a top off for prayer. Like, oh, yeah, we got enough prayer, said nobody ever, right? Pray more, pray more. We need teaching of the word. It's in process. We, we're going in a good direction. More fellowship. Every week, we've got great fellowship. Do we need more lead team members, more laborers? Well, there's some people stepping up, doing some awesome things, identifying emerging leaders. Do we need more doers? Sure. A couple more. We ask God for those people. But we just need the Lord of the harvest to bring forth laborers for the harvest. That's what we need. 
We need to see people come to know Jesus. God's reminding us we need to be focused on faithfulness, not greatness. Psalm 127 says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor do what? They labor in vain. They labor in vain. We need to be a people that's praying and fully engaged, not one or the other, not praying or not just fully engaged. We need to be both. We need to be, those are not opposites. Those are all part, two parts of the same whole. And when God's people engage with 100%, 100% of their hearts in obedient faith, the enemy gets nervous. That's what I want in our community. I want the enemy to be nervous that we're here. Nehemiah is a man of vision. No less overwhelmed in this moment, but with a growing sense of conviction undergirded by God's provision. And that's what we need to pray for today as we wrap up our time. A growing sense of conviction as the people of God about what God is doing and what he's called us to and a clarity about the needs that we have. We need to pray for God's undergirding, his support, his provision, praying for strength and faith for growth and finances, for people. But, but above all those things, we're praying for a fresh move of his Holy Spirit. We need him to move in power. And so let's stop and do that right now. God, would you grant your people a growing sense of conviction? We want to be people who pray, oh, with honest hearts. And that means that we've got to be willing to be used by you to accomplish your will, not just ask you to do it. If there's any heart here that's resistant to that reality, I pray that by your grace, you begin to shift it to bring us into alignment with your will. To know it, to test it and approve what is good and pleasing and perfect. And as we develop that sense of conviction and clarity about what your will is, uh, Father, you know that we have needs. And so we give those back to you. Undergird us, support us, strengthen our hands for the work of the kingdom. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Strength, Lord, and faith in Jesus' name. The growth of your church in your time and in your way the finances and resources that we need to see the mission accomplished. Lord, we trust you for these things. The people that you're you're drawing unto yourself in these days, Lord, help us to be a people who proclaim the gospel unashamedly. Most of all, Lord, we're just asking you for a fresh move of your Holy Spirit in our own hearts. Let let it begin with the, the, the people of God. Let it begin with the household of God. Do a fresh work in us. Align our hearts with your will and your direction and equip us and resource us to walk in faithful obedience. We trust you for these things, Lord. You're a good father. You're a good and faithful God. You've never given us any reason to doubt you or not believe you. So Lord, we we rest in you. We, We lay back, lean into the promises of your word. Lean into your character and your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.